Welcome to Musicians vs. the World. This is the second part of the Choose the Best Music for Your Project series, where I share with you my process of how I go about scoring a project, whether it be this podcast, a film, a commercial, or any kind of advertisement. So today we're going to talk about the nuances of music and how they can help make an abstract emotion more clear. So whenever I'm working on a project and someone tells me, I think we need some sad music here. Let's just put some sad music there. I always have to ask, well, what do you mean sad music? Like what kind of sad music? Because the emotion of sad is actually a very complex and abstract feeling. It's kind of like using the word blue to describe both the sky and the ocean. There are different levels of depth and nuance to both of those things. And just like colors can depict an abstract concept or feeling, so can music. So as you're planning your music and your projects, it's helpful to understand this about music, or more specifically, what makes a sad song sad? And the short answer is, you do, either as a performer or as a listener. Our interpretation of music and what it's trying to say is largely based on shared experiences of culture. And here's why. Here's an example. Let's start with tonality, right? So listen to these two chords. How would you describe how those different chords sound? If you listen, you can hear that there are three different pitches being played at once. The bottom note is what we call the root of the chord. The middle note is three notes higher than that, and we call that the third. And then the top note is actually five pitches up from the root, so we call that the fifth. So we have a root, a third, and a fifth. And if you listen to these two chords, the root and the fifth stay the same between the two. They don't change. It's the middle note. It's that third that changes. When that middle note gives more space between itself and the root, you have a major chord. And when there's less space between the root and the third, then you have a minor chord. If you've taken music lessons of any sort in the past, you've probably heard, well, major is the happy music and minor is the sad music. In fact, a lot of music books actually even teach this concept with a picture of a happy sun and a sad, gloomy rain cloud. How is that? for cultural influence, right? But minor is not always sad. And major is not always happy. And a lot of times, music can't even decide whether it wants to be major or minor. And so let's talk about that major and minor and how it can be used to change the interpretation of what a piece means. Listen to the first half of this Scarlatti Sonata in E major.
How would you describe the character of this piece? What's the feeling that it gives you? Or what kind of story do you think that it's trying to tell? Or what kind of color do you see when you listen to it? I was actually working with a student on the interpretation aspect of this piece earlier today, and we were talking about the character, and I asked him what his thoughts were about it, and he said it sounded scary, and I thought, wait, what? How is this piece of all the music in the world scary? Um, When I think of scary, I think of this. But this sonata is one of like the happiest dance-like pieces out there. And so I asked him to explain himself, and he said something I found really interesting. He said that it sounded like someone was throwing a party and forcing others to dance and wouldn't let them stop dancing as if they were in purgatory. So on the surface, it sounds like an upbeat, happy song, but simmering just underneath is a little sense of malice. I think it's probably because even those pieces in major, Scarlatti adds some minor in there towards the second half. You can kind of hear it. And he adds that in there for exactly what we were talking about, little color nuance. And it's a little nod to the Spanish uh, guitar music that he was so strongly influenced by. So now that you know what to listen for, listen to it again and see if you can hear all of that, you know, foreboding and menace that my student heard in it. Another example of this is folk tunes from different countries. Let's take Greensleeves. It's an English folk tune that's been around for over four centuries. So culturally, it has a long and colorful history. And oh my goodness, there are a ton of videos and articles made about the myth behind its origins. So if you want to get sucked down a rabbit hole of interesting music history, go ahead and look that up. But with such a long history, its meaning has changed significantly over time, from being a somewhat salacious song to a popular dance, and now, at least in the U.S., it's a very famous and popular Christmas song. It's sometimes played in minor and sometimes in a different scale that's called Dorian that was used in a lot of old folk songs. So I played this for my husband, and I wanted to get his take on it, and I asked him what he thought about it, and I played it like this. I wish I had recorded this conversation so you could have heard it. Like, he he listened, and he said in a second, oh, that's sad. And I said, well, what do you mean? How could it possibly be sad? Don't you think of this as, like, just Christmas? And doesn't it make you think of roast turkey and hot chocolate and a burning fireplace and a Christmas tree? And he said, no. 
It sounds like a part of a Christmas carol where they are burying a dead Tiny Tim. And I was like, what? What are you thinking? What are you talking about? So I tried playing it in a different way. Okay, he says. Okay, now it sounds like an old English drinking song if you play it like that. But the other way, when it's just a few little notes, yeah, dead Tiny Tim. So there you go. Even within the context of our own home, our upbringing and perception of whether a song is happy or sad vastly contrasts. Okay, then. It must have something to do with rhythm and tempo, right? Upbeat, fast music is going to be happier, and slower music must be sadder, right? Well, maybe, but sometimes fast music isn't happy. And sometimes slow music isn't sad, but wistful, like a memory. So how does music do this? And how do we use that to our advantage as creators and artists? Well, as it turns out, we learn how to interpret music starting at a very, very, very young age. In the Quarterly Journal of Music Teaching and Learning, J. Diane Anderson examines a few theories on cultural influences on music and musical influences on culture. And she quotes a number of papers by Bruno Nettle, where he describes many of the differences in musical construction across different cultures in the world. So these are like native populations of different cultures throughout the world. And he theorizes that our musical tastes are constructed when we are actually infants. So the lullabies that our mothers and our fathers sing to us as we are children prime the pump, if you will, to our sense of tonality and rhythmic patterns and what sounds happy or sad And if you think about so many of the nursery rhymes that American children learn to sing, like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, Mary Had a Little Lamb, Old MacDonald Had a Farm, Incy Bitsy Spider, you'll see why, at least here in America, we are so connected to this major is happy, minor is sad idea. On the flip side of that, if your mother sings all the pretty little horses to you in your crib as you're falling asleep, You associate that and songs that sound like that to peace and calm, not necessarily sad. And as an added feature, if your parent rocked back and forth along with singing the repetitive lullabies or nursery rhymes, you were developing the first inklings of rhythm and meter. So that's why hearing this... reminds you of the rocking of a boat or the rocking of a rocking chair. It goes back to the way you were rocked and sung to when you were a baby. And what's interesting about this is that the idea of musical repetition and meter and the sense of melody, now melodies are gonna be different, but even having a melody and that it kind of drops down at the end. Um, And all of those different 
aspects of music were found to be universal across all cultures. The nuance comes from tonality, major and minor, what sort of notes sound good together, and what sort of rhythms sound good together. That's what changes over cultures. And that's where so many of those musical stereotypes that we all know come from, are from these cultural influences and changes to the melodies and the harmonies and the specific parts of rhythm. So if you're working on a project or performing a piece, you can play up those small cultural differences to heighten emotion. If you have a different emotion attached to a certain tonality or a certain interval between notes, you're going to use that experience that you've had and you're going to play up that part. Maybe you linger on it a little bit longer in a way that no one else has done. Or maybe you play it louder. Or maybe you play it more forcefully depending on your own experiences to that sound. Or you can use music to create an actual picture in someone's mind. You can make music sound like rain or a dog chasing its tail. Music can do all of these things auditorily because it brings back the memories that people associate with those sounds or, or with those rhythms or with the beating of a heart or with breathing even. See if you can hear the breath and see if you can hear what the heartbeat is doing as a breath comes in. Your heartbeat goes a little bit faster and as your breath goes out, your heartbeat slows down a little bit. And you can record that music or you can compose the music and change the way something is interpreted to match the project or match the emotion that you are trying to convey. Or you can even use the ambiguity of the music to disorient your audience as well, as well as to set up a final showdown or resolution to whatever film or video or project or story you're telling. Or you can even use a musical thought or an instrument or even um, a post-recording processing to foreshadow some major plot points in your film or in your story. The movie Tenant does this pretty blatantly. If you watch that movie and you hear what they're doing to the music and you can hear that little clue that they're doing, then it becomes obvious when it is. And it's a massive foreshadowing of a plot point in the film. And so as you're watching that, you can tell your friends and they can think you're a genius or they'll get mad at you for ruining the whole story. I don't know. Either way, it's kind of fun to listen to and it's a fun exercise. So as you're working on a project or as you are learning a new piece and you're interpreting it, don't get stuck on this whole, oh, this is in minor, it must be sad. Or this is in major, it has to be happy. Think of it as a possibility to look a little deeper and to challenge your audience to confront some of those notions of music that have been ingrained in them from the very moment that they were born. And then, after you do that, since it's Mother's Day, give your mom a call and thank her for your excellent taste in music. Musicians vs. the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smithtown Music. You have heard a lot of music in our episode today, and just a few of the titles are Box Badinerie, 
and Rimsky Korsakoff's Flight of the Bumblebee. And Neil Cross recorded those. You also heard Brahms' Intermezzo in A Major, Mendelssohn's Venetian Boat Song, and Kabalevsky's The Clown, and quite a few more. I encourage you to go to frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world to see the whole list of music featured in today's episode. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss out on any future conversations. If there's a topic you'd like to discuss, please come and chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or send us an email at info at Thanks so much, and happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. <laughs>